In Luke 16, Abraham told the rich man that he was in a state of torment. But Lazarus was in a state of comfort. And that's where our beloved brother Paul is right now, even as we sit in this building where he did and others like unto it for the whole of his life in spirit and truth worship unto God. He has been released from a physical body that endured much, much suffering. I've never been in a circumstance like that and can't begin to comprehend it. Unending, ceaseless pain, agony, just almost inexpressible suffering unless you've been where he was or had a loved one likened to it. And we've had several who at Panama Street who have been through years and years and years of suffering likened to that. Teresa Ketrick, Doug and Nancy's daughter, suffered for years and years. Every time Doug would call, I, I shuddered to hear his voice because I knew he was announcing she was back in the hospital over and over again. It was a blessing when that good woman died. And it's a blessing that Paul has been released from his body of suffering that's what he wanted. That's what he needed. That's what his family wanted and needed also. And in those closing numbers of weeks in his life, that was the prayer that this brother might be visited by those, a portion of that angelic host and taken to a place of comfort. It is a hard thing difficult thing to watch a loved one suffer like that. You suffer right along with them. And this family unit has suffered mightily. April there, every moment of it. And her best friend Tia right by her side much of the time. Watching this poor man wanting to die. And they wanted to see him breathe his last breath. And though you weep over the loss and you have time on the other side of it to try to adjust to it in your mind and heart, you wouldn't have him back where he was for all the money in the world. And he's where we all want to be. In that place against which no armies will ever march. No cloud will ever be seen. 
and no sin can ever enter. The goal of every Christian life. We weep with the family in the sense that weeping is required and necessary a part of the human experience. But we rejoice with his family over the knowledge of where he is. A far, far better place than where we yet find ourselves. This is our eighth sermon on the series, The Purpose of Preaching, based on Acts chapter 2. The fourth point that we completed last Sunday, we will address just quickly because, as you know, in these twilight years of my life, my forgetter is just as potent as my rememberer. And my forgetter forgot two of those gospel sermons that God preached back there in the book of Genesis. The first half of the book, a little over half of the book, addressing the statement made in Genesis 12.3. One of the purposes of preaching is to present Christ in the gospel as man's only hope. And that was addressed in its initiatory form in Genesis 12.3, following Genesis 3.15, the first time God preached the gospel to Adam and Eve, informing them that they had created a problem that they could not cure, that only he had the solution, and with the seed of woman, that would become the seed of Abraham, that would become the seed of Isaac, that would become the seed of Jacob, that would be nestled in 12 sons. And one of those sons David chosen in which to place that seed that was placed in the loins of the spiritual remnant all of their days until God lifted that seed out of the remnant, deposited it in Mary's womb of whom Christ was born. That was announced in Genesis 3.15. Every element of the gospel is in Genesis 3.15. It's just not set forth in specific form, but it's there. Every element. There's not a thing in redemption that is not nestled beautifully in Genesis 3 verse 15. And then it's announced a second time in Genesis 12.3 where God made three promises to Abraham but culminated it with a primary promise. The first two mean nothing. Was there anything spiritually great about being a great nation, having a lot of people? No. Anything spiritually great about having a land like we got, flowing with figurative milk and honey, rich beyond words to adequately describe? No. Nothing to those two promises without being attached to the third. Then they receive their power. In thee, in thy seed, shall all nations of the earth be blessed. Galatians 3.8, God says, or Paul says, God preached the gospel to Abraham when he made that statement. And then, two that I had forgotten. Genesis 18 is the chapter that introduces God's judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah 
Adma and Zeboam, Zor being spared. And Abraham was in the plains of Mamre, and those three visitors came toward his tent. He rushed out to meet them, prepared a meal. The Lord in verse 17 says, Shall I hide from Abraham that which I shall do? Seeing that Abraham shall become a great and mighty nation and all kindreds of the earth, nations of the earth, shall be blessed in him. Another great gospel sermon. Presenting Christ and the gospel as man's only hope in these great promises and prophecies back there to these great men of old. And then Genesis 22, that great chapter that sets forth the trial of Abraham and the giving up of his son Isaac, spared by God's intervention, all intended and a part of the plan of God. And in verses 17 and 18, God said, Seeing you have not spared your only son from me, you've obeyed me. Back to Genesis 12. Going to make a great nation out of you. Numbered like the stars in heaven, if you can count them. And in thy seed shall all families of the earth be blessed. Genesis 26. Isaac is faced by famine. He goes down into Geror of the Philistines. God appeared to him and said, don't go down into Egypt. You stay in this land, the land of Canaan. You stay right here. The land that I promised to your forefathers. And I'm going to make your seed like the dust of the earth. And in thy seed shall all nations of the earth be blessed. And then Jacob in Genesis 28, verses 12 to 14, he's fleeing from his brother, taking mighty advantage of his brother instead of waiting on God and let God work this out. Join with his mama in deceiving his own father and her husband. And now he's fleeing for his life. It's nighttime and he sets up some stone for a pillow. He dreams. There's a ladder from earth to heaven. Angels ascending, descending. God is at the top of the ladder. And he says, Abraham, I mean Jacob. He says, I'm going to make of you a great nation. And I'm going to give your seed this land, just like I promised your forefathers. And in thy seed, all families of the earth will be blessed. Six great sermons using the very language that God used in Genesis 12, 3, that Paul said was a gospel sermon that God preached to Abraham and those of old. The purpose of Peter's preaching was to do that very thing. Present Christ, the seed of woman, the seed of Abraham, as man's only hope. His preaching on Pentecost was not an effort to convert men to the preacher, but con to convert men to Christ. Peter was just the spokesman. Christ was the object. In Acts 2, 22-24, he preached the death, the burial, the resurrection of Christ. The heart, the pivot, the object of the gospel. In Acts 3, 12 to 26, we have Peter's second sermon. In verse 19, he quotes verse 
38 of Acts 2, just in a different form. Repent and be converted that your sins may be blotted out for the remission of sins when the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord. In verse 22 of that gospel sermon, that second gospel sermon that Peter preached, he quoted from Deuteronomy 18, 15 and reminded his audience of what Moses said. Lord our God shall raise up a prophet under the midst of thee, like unto me, unto him ye shall hearken. And in verse 23, he said, Yea, and all of those who do not hear this prophet shall be destroyed from among the people. And in verse 24, he said, All the prophets from Samuel and those that followed him spoke of these days. And then he closed the sermon with the next to the last point in his sermon by quoting verbatim Genesis 12 and verse 2. In thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. Pardon me. <coughs> Acts 4 and verse 12. In verse 10, Peter preached a gospel sermon in one verse, the death and burial of the resurrection of Christ. <coughs> I don't know if I'm going to get through with this eighth sermon or not, but I will try. In verse 11, he said, This is the stone which was set at naught of you builders, which had become the head of the corner. And in verse 12, he said, only in his name can man be saved. <coughs> Acts 5 and verse 42, and daily in the temple and every house, they cease not to teach and preach Jesus Christ. Christ in the gospel, man's only hope. That's what Stephen preached in Acts 7. He paid for it with his life. In Acts 8 and verse 5, Philip went down to Samaria and preached that Christ who is man's only hope unto them. Acts 8 verse 35, when he preached to the eunuch, he began at that very scripture of Isaiah 53 and preached unto him Christ. And then in 1 Corinthians 2, 1 and 2, he said, my whole sermonic efforts is to preach Christ and him crucified. Point number five. One of the purposes of preaching is to promote thought and produce questions. Peter's sermon motivated his audience to think. That's one of the purposes of gospel preaching. We've got to get the audience to think. The world needs to think. He tried to get them to turn their eyes inward, and at least 3,000 did. Self-examination, ponder what they had done. And that reflection, that preaching, that pondering, that thinking right about God and all kindred things produced the greatest of all questions. What must we do to be saved? That's always the purpose of God's questions, produce thought. He's not seeking information. God is omniscient. I know the thoughts that come into your mind, every one of them, Ezekiel 11, 5. John 2, 24 and 25 but Jesus did not commit himself unto them because he knew all men and did not need that man should testify of himself for he knew what was in man. God never asked questions to seek information because he already knows the answers. He's trying to get man to think about himself. He started that in Genesis 3, 9. He asked Adam three questions. Where art thou? Not where he once was. Ooh. 
boy, how Adam and Eve both needed to think, needed to ponder. Where are you? Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the fruit that I told you not to eat of? What thought producing questions to this first human pair who had stepped out of the world of God in perfection, man and innocence of Genesis 1 and 2 and into the world of Genesis 3, 6. Genesis 3, 13, he asked Eve, what is this that thou hast done? Genesis 4, 1 to 16, God dealt with Cain. Cain offered his offering by self-will. God rejected it. Cain was angry. Five questions God asked Cain. In grace, mercy, love, forbearance, trying to work with this man's heart, getting him to think before he shed his own brother's blood. And then to think about what he had done. Why art thou wroth? Why is thy countenance fallen? If thou doest well, shalt thou not be accepted? None of it worked. None of these questions from God's mind and mouth to Cain's heart did one thing ought to change Cain's thinking. He refused to think right about God, about himself, about anything. Where is Abel thy brother? God knew where Abel was. He's trying to get Cain to think about what he had done. And so he asked finally, what hast thou done? In Numbers 14 and verse 11, God asked Moses concerning Israel, how long will this people provoke me? And how long will it be ere they believe me for all the signs that I have shown unto them? Humanly speaking, you could hear frustration in the words of God in this question to Moses about this wicked, rebellious, horrendously evil people. In number 14 and verse 27, God said, How long shall I bear with this evil congregation? What questions? Elijah was a great man of God, but he was not perfect. And in fear and trembling, with a faltering faith, he ran from Jezebel as fast as he could run. Left his servant in Beersheba. And 40 days and nights later, he finally quit running. And he was in a cave in Mount Horeb. Here's God's question to Elijah. Elijah needed to think, ponder and reflect about this question. What doest thou here? What are you doing here? The implications in that question are mighty implications upon which to reflect. John's question to the Pharisees and Sadducees, O generation of vipers who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Matthew 3, 7. Instead of thinking about the silliness 
of their attitude toward this fleshly relationship with Abraham as though that secured their redemption. They should have been pondering that question. There were two great wraths to come that they should have been thinking about. The wrath on the nation of Israel in AD 70 that was going to totally destroy them. And the wrath that most humankind are yet facing. Peter's audience on Pentecost needed to think, ponder, and reflect on the condition of their souls before God. Is there anything in life more needful than personal self-examination of one state before God? Acts 20, verse 28, Paul said to those elders at Ephesus, Take heed unto yourself. And then to the flock, over which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers, to feed this flock. Every elder should awake every morning of his life and ponder mightily his responsibility before God for which he will give account for looking after the spiritual welfare of every sheep, spiritual sheep, every member of the church under his oversight. Perhaps such pondering and reflection and raising sub such questions as his own. What is my responsibility to Brother Jones, Sister Smith? Get out the directory and look at every member. I'm going to give account for every one of these souls, every one of these spiritual sheep. What do I need to do today, tomorrow, next week, next month? Who needs special help? Who needs some counseling? Who needs some special prayer? Who do I need to visit today? Who do I need to call today? Who do I need to send a, a letter of concern to today? What can I do to help this soul, that soul, the other soul? Great questions elders need to ponder. 2 Corinthians 13, 5, examine yourself, whether you be in the faith. There were factions in the church trying to prove that Paul was a heretic, but they gave no heed to themselves. Paul is saying, you need to examine yourself. I examine myself. What about you examining yourself and your attitude toward me, which is a reflection of your attitude toward the church, toward Christ? You need to think about the things of which you are accusing me and the things of which you yourself are guilty. 1 Corinthians 11, 28 29 describes what I hope every member of this church has just done in partaking of the Lord's Supper. But let a man examine himself, and so let him take of this Lord's Supper. He that taketh unworldly is guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. Matthew 7, 1 to 5, a powerful condemnation of censorious, critical, self-righteous judgment coming from the minds of those and many in the church who ignore personal self-examination which would prohibit this kind of judgment. Looking for that mote in our brother's eye, our sister's eye, and ignoring the beam in our own. Holding them up in our minds for critical, censorous condemnation while we're guilty of far worse sins as we think of some sins relative to consequences being far worse. I've often, often kept my own mind in remembrance on a daily basis that 
60 seconds of personal exa examination of my own life. Weaknesses and frailties and, and sins of the past and temptations of the present and so forth and so on will keep me from that kind of judgment that God sorely despises. Peter's sermon was directed to the minds of his audience. He wanted them to think right about God. Thinking right about God would enable them to think right about themselves and about their conduct. Is that not true? It is. Peter's sermon focused on their minds, not their emotions or their feelings. Denominationalism is permeated with feelings and emotions. The liberal element in the church thrives on feelings and emotions. They do little thinking and little pondering about the truths of God. He knew they would feel right if they thought right and did right. Feelings just come naturally when they follow right thinking and right doing. Right feelings flow as naturally from right teaching and right conduct as does cold from ice or heat from fire. Naaman said, Behold, I thought. And the kind of thinking he did got him into all kinds of trouble. He almost cut himself off from his healing with that kind of foolish, silly thinking. Behold, I thought. Didn't matter what it, he thought. What mattered was what God through the prophet had said. And the truth is his feelings were warped because his thinking was warped. But he got his thinking right. And he did what the prophet told him and he came up feeling better than he'd felt in his life. Suppose those on Pentecost had ignored Peter's quotation from Joel and David and just focused on his accusation. Ye with wicked hands have crucified and slain. They may have responded like those in Stephen's audience in Acts 7. We must never allow our feelings to outrun our minds. When a man hears the right thing and thinks right about it, he will ask the right question. That's what happened on Pentecost of Acts 2. They heard the right thing. They heard Bible-centered preaching. Half of that sermon constituted direct quotation from the Old Testament. 25 verses addresses that sermon, and 12 of them were quotations from the prophets of old. They heard the truth. They thought right about the truth they had heard, and they raised the right question. What must we do to be saved? The kind of preaching that God accepts, the kind of preaching that Peter did on Pentecost is the kind of preaching that causes and motivates and provokes the audience to think right and raise the right questions. You're president and the right question has been raised in your heart the answer to which you have not devoted in obedience. We hope by faith you repent of your sins, confess Christ, be baptized into Christ. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. If you've done that straight away, that you'll come home with penitence, confession and prayer, or 
we'll be happy to pray for you regarding any need you have while we stand and sing. standing for the closing song, number 18. Appreciate those of you that are visitors being here with us today. We encourage you to come back, be with us tonight for our worship hour at 6, training class at 5, memory class at 5.30. Blessed be the tie, uh, verse, or, uh, number 18. We'll sing verses 1, 3, and 4. Blessed be the tie that binds our hearts in Christian love, the fellowship of kindred minds is like to Our mutual burn. 
and often for each other flows the sympathizing team when we Father, we're so thankful for another opportunity to come before your throne. We're thankful for the blood of Jesus that allows us to be able to do that. Uh, we pray that our worship has been pleasing in your sight. Uh, we pray that you will help us, strengthen us to do better spiritually as we go throughout our day. And we pray that you'll bring us back to worship you tonight uh, and, uh, and that we will be, continue to be evangelistic every moment that we have an opportunity. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. <laughs> 